This week on The Futurist, Dave Birch. I say at the end of the book, the future of money looks much more like the past than the present. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Tursick and my co-host, Brett King. Hey, hey, hey. Hi, Brett. How are you back. doing, man? Good, good. good. Yeah. Have picked you got up some the, new... I, I picked up the Tesla today. Oh, a very so, futuristic car. Some, some, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm walking the talk, right? Yeah, good so. for you. And how was that process? Was it seamless and smooth? Uh, well, you know, apart from the fact that I needed to um, navigate the North Carolina DMV, which was in itself a, an entire experience. But apart yeah. from that, yeah, it was, it was all done digitally. Um, the whole thing um you know a bit of text messaging back and forth because i couldn't take delivery on the connecticut license i had to wait till i got the new license so um but apart from that it was fairly painless um and you know it's like you're stepping into a spaceship you know um right on. So yeah, right on. Cool. welcome to the future of automotive have you got some news items today i have i have a couple of news items first is there's been a new a discovery or a new uh um implant made from pig skin which reverses blindness for people it's already been applied um uh, over a dozen people have already had this um uh, procedure and they've gone from blind to 2020 vision after the transplant it's an artificial cornea made from pig skin mm -hmm. and um you know this is sort of this is sort of the transgenic stuff we were talking about um, yeah. earlier in terms of the way we're, uh, you know, engineering um, this stuff. The second piece of news, which is interesting, is there's this brand new AI tool that has been um, uh, discovered. It's from uh, UC San Diego, a nano engineer there called uh, Professor Shui Ping Ong, um, created this algorithm called M3GNet. Um, it's part of the metaverse.ai database, and it um, expands our understanding of different materials materials and combinations of metals and so forth. And already they've discovered plant or discovered materials that are going to make batteries significantly more efficient and so forth. Um, and this is all done basically by AI looking at the sort of structure of uh, different polymers and metals and, you know, so forth and sort of combining them into uh, new materials that don't currently exist today. So this is the sort of thing where AI is going to be really interesting because it can take inference from, you know, learning about existing materials we have and extrapolate um, new thinking out of that. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty cool news. And speeding up discovery as well. Yeah, that's a really cool idea. The, the transformation of many industries is happening simultaneously with AI as it's deployed across all of them. It's hard to keep your arms around all of it. I mean, I can imagine us doing this for all sorts of things. Like think about, um, you know, physics, elements of physics in terms of uh, new um, particles that we haven't discovered or things like that. Or, you know, like it's, it, it's just going to uncover so much knowledge for us. It's really interesting greatly accelerating drug discovery with AI as well. Well, let's give a big welcome to, to Dave Birch. Dave's your friend, longtime friend, right? Yeah, Dave and I have known each other for um, over a decade. Um, Dave um, is, hey, is one of the world's uh, preeminent experts on identity and digital money. Um, and he's a big sci-fi fan as well. So <laughs> it's good. To, it's, we're going to get sci-fi today on, on identity and money, future of money. Dave, welcome to the show. 
Hi, guys. Great to be here. It's nice to meet you. I've been interested in your work since I read this book. Uh, this is uh, Identity is the New Money, which is actually not a new book. You wrote that book almost a decade ago, I think. Yeah, no, I wrote that book a few years ago. But um, it's full of really prescient insight about the way things were going to evolve in a network world. Yeah, I, I made some. I made some what what you know turned out to be some pretty accurate uh, guesses in that. I mean, not not because I was a genius, but because I was, you know, looking at what was going on and and looking at what other people were saying and and putting a few things together. But um, yeah, so you are a futurist. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he certainly forecasted that. But but tell us what you meant at the time uh, by that phrase: identity is the new money. Well, it, it has sort of two meanings, really. So the first is the sort of quite literal, um, you know, my, my heritage in this space was working in financial services. I, I, you know, I did a lot of work in payments. After a while, it became apparent, not only to me, but to me and other people, that um, a lot of the problems that we were seeing in that space were, you know, at core were really identity problems. Um, it's because nobody knew who anybody was. And this this sort of narrative that the you know basically the internet was broken. It was built without an identity layer. It was built without a payments layer. Although rather famously, as everybody knows, the HTTP error code is still there. So there is still the error code for for you have to pay for this content. There's just no mechanism for for implementing it. And 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 now you know with the great sweep of history, we can see the lack of. Um, the lack of payments and identity in the internet led to this kind of advertising-led Web two, and blah blah blah. I mean, we all we all sort of know that narrative. So, uh, so, and the more I thought about this, I got very interested in issues around identity, and I read a lot, and I spoke to a lot of people, and I realized a lot of these issues were really nowhere near being resolved. They needed some more thinking. I decided to put together a book about it. And I edited a book called Digital Identity Management back in 2007, which which was a nightmare experience. I just, I'm never going to edit a book again. <laughs> I mean, it's so nonetheless, to, to do that, I had some very smart people contributing, and that made me think about it. I ruminated on it for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and then I began to think, what is actually in the bank? Right. I don't really have any money in the bank, as my bank manager will willingly testify. Um, you know, virtually none of my wealth, such as it is, is in the form of money in the bank. Um, what's what's really in the bank is my identity and my and, and, and it's an easy thought experiment to do. So uh, Brett and I get into a fight. He smashes a chair over my head. Uh, I wake up in the morning and uh you know, I've I, I've lost all my money. My cards are gone. I wake up in an alleyway. Oh, that was that story I was writing. I'm sorry. Yeah, I need to... But you know, you have to put it in context. We'd been <laughs> drinking and no, just, just kidding. <laughs> but the point is, you know, I wake up and all my money is gone. My cards are gone. You know, whatever. That's okay. I still have my identity. I still have my reputation. I can still go and borrow some money from somebody. I, I can still go to the bank and get a loan. You know, you know what I mean? Like, not from me, apparently. <laughs> but if all my money disappears, it doesn't really matter. But now I wake up in the morning and I don't know who I am. And I, I go to the bank and say, can, I need some money. Can you lend me some money? And the bank are like, well, who the hell are you? Uh, it's a different story. 
And so I began to think that actually a big part of the, and this is how actually I originally started reading Bank 2.0, Brett's book, mm. which is how I eventually got talking to Brett because I started to think, hold on, this stuff that we're working on for these banks, this doesn't seem quite right. There's, there's something else bubbling along here. And, so I just um, want to understand your story. So what you're saying is if you got in a situation where you lost your identity, where you, your identity was stolen, your identifiers, you know, your credit, your cards, your, your passport were taken away, then it's really hard for you to get any kind of access to the money and the wealth that you've got because no one knows who you are. You can't, you can't prove Correct. that. Correct. Okay. I don't know how old your audience is. I don't know your demographics, but I don't know if you remember the fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. Um, but for no that idea audience, what you're talking about. Uh, uh, you're not old enough. Um, but you might say identity will get you through times of no money more than money will get you through times of no identity. Uh, it's it's highly asymmetric. So so at one level, there was this idea that was, which I think has turned out to be you know, broadly true, that we're heading towards a reputation economy, that mm-hmm. banks really should play a leading role in that. Um, I have no evidence to offer that banks have any actual strategies for taking advantage of this, but that's a, that's a different issue. Mm-hmm. Are, are banks things. playing a role in reputation management? Is that even something that you think they're doing? No. No, yeah, I, think I, think, I think that's true, too. It's a true story. I've told Brett this story before, and I won't name, but I once went to the unveiling. Uh, this is in the this is in the 1990s. This is after mobile phones had been invented, after the internet. It's in the late 90s. One of the uh, banks I was working for had a big uh, project running about the future of banking, and several, you know, we were invited along to the grand unveiling of the Bank of the Future. And the bank of the future was exactly the same as the bank of the past, except <laughs> I'm not making this up. The corners of the desks were rounded. And the idea was that rounded corners on the desk would be more welcoming to customers coming into the branch than square corners. I'm not even making this up. I wish I was making that right. up. That was the bit. And that's how come I started reading. It's weird because, you know, I, I read okay. Brett's book and I'm like, there's something different going on. You had this epiphany 10 years ago. Have, have things improved? Uh, what, is, what is your perspective on the state of digital identity now? Well, it, it's pretty poor. I mean, let's uh, let's reflect on 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 Brett's, uh, Brett's motherland. I was down in Australia a couple of weeks ago. There's been a massive data breach of Optus, the telecommunications company. But essentially, everybody in Australia has had their identity stolen. Uh, 3 million driving licenses, I think 3 million passports, 10 million. And the CEO, I'm not making stuff either. This is, you can look in AFR. The CEO was quoted as saying, well, essentially, yes, it's unfortunate people's name, address, date of birth, social security number, driving license, passport, phone number was stolen. But fortunately, no financial information was stolen. That's like, oh, well, okay, so no financial information. Well, that's great. You know, unfortunately, though, identity is the new money. Mm. So Optus have had to go and block uh, these passports. So people whose passports, they they can't use their passport number for online identity. Two, two million people had their passport information stolen. And now Optus has got the, the government has has mandated that Optus needs to pay for replacements, right? I'm not. I know. I know. Optus. The I saw a figure of 140 million Australian dollars for restitution. I'm not. I don't know what exactly it's being spent on, but, but so so to your to your question directly. No, things haven't improved. And um, yeah, we hear about, I, I know, we hear, I, I, we hear about data breaches on that scale every month. 
sometimes every week. It's, uh, it's I mean, not, it's not only that. It's it's using identity. I was at a you cut know, this is you know, the layers of irony here. I was at a conference. I was at a digital identity conference with the world's leading digital identity people, and I wanted to stay a bit longer. I had to change my flight back, so I, I run up my airline app, and because I'm logging in from somewhere new where I've never logged in before, it asks me for my favourite breed of dog, which presumably ten years ago when I was setting this thing up. So I'm trying to change my, I'm at the conference of the world's leading digital identity experts. I'm trying to change my flight and I do have to do it by remembering what my favorite breed of dog was 10 years ago, you know, which luckily I got right on the third guess. So to answer your question, no, it hasn't improved. But there's a second and I think more important meaning, um, Robert, you know, in the book, I, I say that if you're looking to the sort of if, if I, I say at the end of the book, the future of money looks much more like the past than the present. If you read the work, not of technologists, but if you read the work of of the social anthropologists, the people who understand how people uh, use tools and technology and whatever, what they what they say, people like Jack Weatherford and people like that, what you see is they're saying in the past, there were lots of different kinds of money and different communities had different kinds of money and they used it for different things. And then because of cities and trade and whatever, you have homogenization, and then you have the Industrial Revolution, and you go from this pre-industrial society where there basically is no money. I mean, in a pre-industrial society, most people lived on credit the entire time. You know, farmers would live on credit throughout the year and then pay off their debts when the harvest came in. And it all worked perfectly well because everybody knew everybody else. Mm-hmm. And one of my favorite case studies from history about this, which Brett and I have discussed before, is the Irish bank strikes of the 1970s. So Ireland was still quite a rural economy at that point. The banks went on strike. There was no money in circulation. And when economists look back and study that period, they see a negligible impact on GDP. Why was that? Because when there was no money, people just made up their own. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the kind of central clearing center for these new money, which is basically people writing IOUs, was the pub. Mm-hmm. Because in a rural economy, the guy running the pub knows everyone. He's perfectly capable of discounting my IOUs against Brett. That's like the tea in coffee houses used to be a central part for foreign exchange in yeah, London yeah. in the those days. Yeah. But you know, it's but like I, I think the absurdity of your, you know, your date of birth, your address, your mother's maiden name, if you live in the US, your social security number being considered your identity as Mm -hmm. ways you justify your identity. I think that's ridiculous today because none of that information is really securable today. So if you want secure identity to protect your assets, then, you know, this is the problem with conventional identity in that it just, it, it, you know, you can't be protected. And that kind of identity that's issued by a government, that's an artifact of the industrial era. I mean, that that was at the the time when that was issued for social security tech. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, no, you're right. It's a it's a bureaucratic response to the urban anonymity of the industrial revolution. But in your book, but, you make the excellent point, though, that the real basis of identity is reputation. And on the internet, yeah, no, exactly. we do have the ability to build reputation. And I'm interested in your thoughts about reputation as currency. Well, that that's why I ended up with the conclusion that, you know, in in this past where everybody knew everybody else, so everybody could continuously compute essentially the credit rating of everybody else and the mutual sort of cross obligations in a, in a local society 
were memorized and played out you know i owe you a cow at the end of the year you need to put a roof on my house next year i mean whatever um we could remember all of these things once you once that's why kochilakota says money is a primitive form of memory you know once once you can't remember all of those things you need some other intermediary to do it but in the internet world the kind of McLuhan world the global village where everyone is connected to everybody else all the time you can remember all of these things everything can be remembered you don't well, need by whom, by whom though because the big issue on the internet as i understand it with identity is that you don't have one digital identity you've got hundreds but you don't control any of them they're controlled but by but, yes, but, the thing is, but, but as you've pointed out we, we wouldn't interact through our identity as uh, you know as brett made the point about names we would we would interact on the basis of reputation so for example let's say i'm buying something from you and in order to do it i need to see that you've got uh, you've got five eBay stars, like whatever. I mean, some thing. Do. I the the thing that enables the transaction is me seeing that reputation, mm-hmm. and, and let's imagine that's happening in a structure which is cryptographically uh, secure. It's unforgeable, and so on. So I need to see this reputation for the transaction to proceed. Great, and we do the transaction. Everything's fine. I have no idea whether you're a person, or a bot, or a car. Or a or toaster a, pretending to be a dog that's pretending yeah, to be a person. And the point is, I don't care because your identity is not the transaction enabler. Your reputation is. And in that kind of society, in the long term, you know, and and I'm a, I'm a great disciple of Edward de Bono in this respect. Um, so people people like McLuhan and de Bono, they, they thought this stuff through before there was even a World Wide Web. They just thought from first principles. What happens when everything is connected to everything else? Mm-hmm. They weren't technologists. They weren't. They weren't thinking in terms of oh, HTTP or the. They were just thinking when everything's connected to everything else. How does that change things? McLuhan has turned out to be right in almost every respect, you know. And, and mm-hmm. he said, he said in 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 this interconnected world, the old ways of establishing identity, the bureaucratic ways, just don't work. And he was he was spot on with that. Yeah. But de Bono also said, look if. If you have this, like, if you have this global market continuously computing credit ratings, continuously connected, you no longer need the intermediary of money. So when Brett and I come to a deal, like on our phone, like Brett's going to sell me a book and I'm going to pay for it. And on my phone, it says 10 Wessex groats, because that's Wessex groats are the currency that makes sense to me. On Brett's phone, it says he's selling it for, you know, nine, nine ounces of gold or something, whatever makes sense to him. Doesn't matter. Okay. When we execute the transaction, our agents, our AIs, will negotiate baskets of liquid assets to exchange. Mm -hmm. And that sounds crazy when you're talking about people. Like, I was, oh, Brett, you know, I've got a bus pass and a tin of red paint. And well, I'll take the tin of red paint. Will you take? Will you take this bag of hay in in return? As chat? well, no, I'll take the bag of hay. But that, actually, that doesn't quite right. That's not quite. So let me give you this pencil as well. I mean, it makes no sense mm-hmm. when you're talking. But when you're talking about tokens and decentralized finance and AIs that can compute these things in nanoseconds, I press the button to buy the book. A few nanoseconds later. Our AIs have worked out which basket of tokens to exchange. Mm-hmm. So, this, so this, you know, and, and there is no money anymore. 
Right. So this, I think th- this is where AI and sort of machine to machine transactions get really interesting. I can think of dozens of examples where a self-driving Uber you know, might negotiate for, uh, you know, electricity time, for example, you know, g- um, yeah, to yeah. regenerate its battery um, and trade off hours driven for uh, access to energy uh, and so forth. Um, but uh, largely, that's going to be sort of a black box function of um, these AIs dealing with each other. You're talking about individuals um, bartering through an I, AI I system, but the machine-to-machine element is where it gets really crazy, I think. I, I don't think people will be involved in a lot of these. Tra- Look, Brett, when, when, you're looking at, when you're looking into the future of financial services as a whole, um, and this is a very sweeping statement, but I would say, broadly speaking, there are two categories of transactions. There are there are there are transactions are too boring for people to do. Like when I go and park, as I've just done, when I go and park my car and I have to pay for the car parking, that's so boring. Like why are human beings made to do this? I mean, like that's exactly the sort of thing that you know I should just drive in and park, and my car should negotiate the and take care of it for me. Like I don't want to be involved in that transaction. I don't even want to be in the loop. You know, it's so mind-numbingly boring. It's why would any of my brain cells be wasted on this? In a, in a, okay. But tomorrow, I have a call with my pen. Tomorrow morning, in fact, I have a call with my pension advisor. This is the single most important financial set of transactions in my entire life, and I, I guarantee I will talk to my pension advisor tomorrow morning, and he will tell me that the triple inverted tax flip overdub has been replaced by an inverted capital allowance. And I have literally no idea what he's talking about. He may as well be talking to me in Mandarin Chinese. I have, and I'm an intelligent person. I have no clue what he's talking about. So you have these two categories of transactions. They're either there's transactions which are too boring. People shouldn't be doing them. Bots should be doing them. And there are transactions that are too important for people to do. You know, just like in a few years' time, you won't be allowed to drive your car into the city center because it's manifestly more dangerous to let you drive the car. Than have the like if you want to drive a car, you'll have to go to a special place to drive it. Mm-hmm. You'll have to go to a park somewhere or what, like or a track, yeah, or a track. You know, why would you allow people to drive cars around? This is madness. Yeah, they're you know? too risky. Like well, our make, grandkids make the connection. To, to, make the connection to transactions. So I wanted to then why do you why do you allow people to make decisions about their pensions and so on when they clearly don't understand what they're doing? Well, who should do that for them? Should some government agency do that? I don't know why it would have to be a government agency. I'm just trying to think if you're saying that you know, people cannot make and they're not they're not capable of making decisions or the decisions are too too complicated for them, that implies that some other person there's or entity can make like a, on their behalf, There's right? probably like an 820 rule there, Robert. Actually, it's probably like a, a 98-2 rule. Like for the overwhelming majority of people, you know, basically a pretty simple ML, you know, and a bot could really like for the average person to be told, listen. You need to take out a bank loan to pay off that credit card debt, and you need to put that surplus into this pension account. Like this does not need this. No, we just need we just need an AI to manage our money in the optimal, most optimal fashion. You know? For most people, no, sir. Yes, of and course, and frankly, frankly, even getting a financial analyst to look after your money today and give you advice on that is fraught because a, you know, they're incentivized to you know try and get you to invest in certain products that where they get the most commission, mm-hmm. um, and secondly, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
analysts and banks in general are trying to get you to make decisions to for, for them to make fee off your money, mm-hmm. right? So um, what you want is you want to take that element out of this. And, and in the financial services system, we've had this concept of financial education or financial literacy, mm-hmm. which is all it basically says is you need to have a certain level of education or literacy so you understand the financial system as the yeah, bankers no, I, have designed I, I, it, right? I just don't see this as a way forward. Like any, any version of the future which requires people to learn anything, I just don't see it. You know, I'd say, I was joking, you know, you say, we, we, if you imagine you have these bots working for people, like in the UK, we say, well, maybe this would be like a, a kind of national wealth service instead of a national health service. For the national health service, you didn't make a national health service by teaching everybody medicine and teaching them how to be doctors. I mean, true, you didn't true. do that. You just said, look, you here are qualified people who do this. If you break your leg, you go see the doctor and he fixes it. Like it's a similar kind of thing. Right. And for those algorithms, the machine learning we're seeing, particularly in areas like diagnostics, for example, um, because it's collecting all of the best human, um, you know, knowledge in respect to medicine or diagnostics is actually outperforming humans now. Right. But 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 in medicine, that's done to support the doctors like it's done to make life for better for the doctors better for the patients you know i don't see why finance would be any different so so this idea that you know people should be in you know this be your own bank thing that comes out of the bitcoin like these people are insane that's literally (laughs) the that's the worst possible way you could imagine running anything so so i look i sort of think you know brett brett's right about the role of ai in all of this i i just guess what i think is probably underrepresented in the thinking is that when people talk about AI in banking and finance, they tend to think about the banks having the AI and, and you know, personalizing service and doing chatbots and whatever. And when I log into the bank, I get served by a very believable avatar of Robert De Niro playing Bernie Madoff in that in But that all movie. you actually need is a smart wallet. Yeah, but, you know, I want to be entertained when I go, you know. <laughs> but the point is that that's... The the real revolution in financial services is when customers get the AI, not when the yeah. banks get the yeah, AI. Exactly. And I All think right, so that's not thought through enough. We're we're heading into the break, but before that, we like to do our quick fire round, Dave. Oh, okay. So these the, these are quick answers, right? Um, so All I right, know that's on. very difficult for you, but <laughs> I got to pin you down to it. So, um, all right. So here's here's our quick fire lightning round. What was the first science fiction you remember being exposed to on TV or via books? Uh, well, on TV, it would have been Doctor Who, without a shadow of a doubt, as an integral part of my childhood. In terms of books, I'm, I can't actually remember, but the stuff I grew up reading was the kind of golden age stuff. Yeah. And the the the, re, the writer that I devoured when I was a kid was Isaac Asimov. Mm. Yeah, amazing. Um, what technology do you think has most changed humanity? Air conditioning. That's a pretty cool one, actually. No, it's yeah. like, you see, again, this isn't me, but this is because I've read Robert Gordon's uh, right. History of American Productivity. So I know the I know the actual figures, you know. There you go. There you go. <laughs> um, you've already mentioned Asimov, so this that might be the answer, but can you name a futurist or entrepreneur that has personally influenced you and, and why? Uh, well, entrepreneurs, there's probably quite a few that I've I've paid attention to. I suppose like everybody of my generation, we all look at sort of Steve Jobs. I mean, how how much 
he's inspired I, I can't say in terms of futurists i i always point the finger at the same person which is william gibson yeah. because the, the early part of my career was in secure communications technology i did a lot of work in military and civilian uh, satellite communications and early networking and i remember the first time i read anything by gibson it's just you're you're a few technically pages, brilliant yeah. and suddenly you realize like oh my god now i understand what i'm doing like like yeah. a real artist yeah. he showed you you know what I mean? Like, and all of a sudden, all the stuff I was working on, these networks, and I could visualize him in a way I hadn't before. So I Perfect. always, I always point at Gibson. Okay, and um, last one: What is the best prediction an entrepreneur, futurist, or science science fiction practitioner has ever made? Do you think? Oh, everybody knows the answer to that. It's Arthur C. Clarke and the communication satellite. There you go. <laughs> Clark, the Clark orbit, which we now refer to as geosynchronous orbit. Yeah, but, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Yeah, no, was a pretty interesting bit. Yeah. And he's pretty prescient on the internet too, you know, um, as was David Bowie, actually. Well, that's great. Let's take a that's quick true. break. Bowie was a close second. That's true. Absolutely. Um, we'll take a quick break. And then after the break, we're going to get full futurist on the future of money and identity with Dave Birch. You're listening to The Futurists. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Brett King, your host, along with Rob Tursek. Um, and our guest this week is Dave Birch. But before we jump back into the future of money and identity, Rob, take us through this week's news from the future on our deep dive. Cool. This week, I want to talk about NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Uh, the general perception is that the, uh, the field of cryptocurrency is in a state of chaos, and that's evidenced by the collapse of big exchanges like FTX and other big players in the cryptocurrency field. Um, that said, there's been a lively innovation happening in non-fungible tokens. Non-fungible tokens have different properties from other cryptocurrencies. Um, one of the interesting things about them is that they make it possible for people to exchange things that aren't money. Uh, they create lively markets for other kinds of items, including things that pertain to identity. The topic I thought would be interesting for today is to talk about brand identity and NFT. Uh, most of us think about uh, non-fungible tokens for things like artwork, uh, and they work quite well for that. There were some spectacular sales, about $20 billion of uh, transactions in 2021. And by all accounts, it's going to be more than that this year, despite the meltdown in cryptocurrency. Uh, so the field of NFTs is growing and lively. But what's interesting to me is that the major brands are moving into this space. And you'd think given all the chaos in cryptocurrency, they'd be quite cautious. Um, companies like uh, fashion brands, uh, like Dolce & Gabbana, Gucci, Lacoste, Louis Vuitton, Prada, and sports brands like Nike, it's generated more than $200, billion, $200 million in the space already, uh, and Adidas have been at the very forefront. But other kinds of brands have also been very active with NFTs, issuing their own NFTs. That includes beverage brands like Budweiser, 
Robert Mondavi Wine, the Scottish Distillers, uh, major sports brands in the United States, uh, the, the, the NBA, the NFL, the Football League, the Major League Baseball, and of course, the European Soccer Leagues as well. Uh, media brands like Walt Disney, Warner Brothers, Paramount, BBC Studios have also issued NFTs, and many game companies have experimented with NFTs inside of games to create currencies. Um, a lot of this would be chalked up to a kind of innovation exercise or experimentation. They're, they're fairly small scale in terms of the number of coins that are being offered. Um, in some cases, they're not attempting to monetize. In some cases, they're doing it for charity purposes uh, because this is mostly a marketing exercise. So it's not, they're not, their objective isn't to make a profit on the NFT sales, but they do understand one thing that's really important. Fans, super fans, want to identify with the brands that they love, and they want to purchase that identity in some cases, and they want to share that with people. And so what we're starting to see is kind of like an opt-in community emerge here. This has been a very lively field, and it continues to grow. Um, so I thought we'd kick off with that as a notion, and that helps us talk a little bit more about the future of identity and some of the ways it's evolving. Because, of course, when we think about identity, it's not limited to people identity. There's identity for things. There's identity for products identity for locations and so forth. Now, uh, Dave, at the break, we were talking a little bit about cryptocurrency and um, let's, let's get into that subject. Uh, you know, the, 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 the problems of identity, the lack of identity on the web led to the rise of the big web 2.0 companies. Um, you know, our social media networks, in a way they manage our identities for us. We opt in, we share a ton of information with them and they make a lively business out of monetizing those identities um, by targeting ads at us. And that's worked pretty well until recently where Apple's shaken it up a bit. Now we're going to a cookie-less web browsing experience that will shake that up even more. Uh, and that creates an opportunity for some form of decentralization. That's really at the core of the web free movement. It's not quite the same as cryptocurrency, but it does rely on the blockchain. Dave, if you would share with us some perspectives about decentralized identity. I think that the underlying technologies here are, are really pretty, you know, this idea that you'll have some sort of wallet, this wallet will contain multiple identities. Those identities can be the owner of, of both, you know, fungible tokens like cryptocurrency, like, you know, dollars, uh, as well as non-fungible tokens. I, I think that's really pretty interesting. And and actually, in many ways, I think this is much more interesting than, than than just the straight kind of cryptocurrency story itself. You know, NFTs in particular. You know, pe people tend to think about those as stupid pictures of chimpanzees with sunglasses mm -hmm. on that people paid three hundred thousand dollars for, and now they're worth nine cents. And so they kind of write off the whole kind of NFT thing. But actually, NFTs, this idea that you can have digital objects which have the same fundamental characteristic as physical objects in that they're uncopyable. We don't yet have a Star Trek replicator. And even if we did, you could think of NFTs as being a sort of gold-pressed latinum that won't go through the replicator. This is a genuinely interesting development in the history of online. So up until relatively recently, we thought that everything that was digital could be copied Mm -hmm. um, whether it's an artwork or a song or a computer program or anything else, it's just data, it can be just copied. The really interesting thing about tokens is they can't be copied. And that's that's profound. I mean, that's really interesting. So now you have digital objects that people can actually own because they're because they're and, and people don't own those at the moment. So so I mean people talk about, oh, look at 
Fortnite, you know, is this the future where you, you know, you go in Fortnite and you work hard and you buy a hat in Fortnite and everybody wants this hat and so on. But the point is, you don't, you don't own the hat. Fortnite does. Uh, it, it's, it's a. So this idea that you can have these digital objects that can actually belong to somebody, I think that really is very interesting. And I think there are certain. I'll give you a very simple example. You read all that stuff in the papers last week about Taylor Swift. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I read it. So I I couldn't pick Taylor Swift out, out of a police lineup. I've, as far as I know, I've never heard any of her music. I wouldn't know. But, you know, she's famous. And, and there was this thing about her tickets. Like, And I'm thinking, why are all these people involved? Tickets, concert tickets, are the perfect example of an NFT. They are absolutely unique. Mm-hmm. Like a ticket for... Row B, seat 27, at this night at Madison Square Garden, that is a perfect example of something that should be an NFT. Yeah, There shouldn't be any issue of people counterfeiting barcodes or turning up with copies of tickets. No, because there's or only scalping. one. Or scalping. Yeah, yeah. Or scalping. There's, well, we have different views you about could, scalping. You could scalp no, NFTs. It, 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 it creates a secondary market that could be quite used, could quite good, What's where the artists can continue to get paid, what? you know? Why why is it considered like if I buy a share in Apple because I think it's going to go up, that's okay. But if I buy a ticket for a Taylor Swift concert because I think it's going to go up, that's bad. I don't understand. Why is that? I don't get that. Yeah. But, so, but the NFTs enable a secondary market where royalties of course. go back to and, the and, artists. And so in, in a, a way, same world, you know, Taylor Swift would have just minted all of her concert tickets. Yeah. as nfts and just sold them on ebay what the hell's ticketmaster got to do with it and the interesting thing is ticketmaster now has partnered with uh with the company that that did nba uh top shop uh, to create nft tickets and there's a lot of there's a lot of uh evidence to support what you're saying there's some trouble right now with scanning those you know with at the um at a, at a concert venue but you know you know obviously my I why do you from, need to scan like I can't you just a, walk through an electronic gate you know? So uh, no, transa- it's you- transactions per second on the blockchain are quite slow. And right. so uh, when you have 50,000 people trying to come into a concert venue in the space of a couple of hours, uh, if it takes 12 right. seconds to verify each one, that, that creates a bad yeah, yeah, yeah. So what they're doing at festivals when- now is that they're creating a separate line for the NFT holders because they are creating this kind of like lifetime membership concept yeah. no, that, for NFT but holders. That's, but Robert, that, that's because, you know, the, these NFT experiments are going on on Ethereum and these other blockchains. Yeah. The, the thing is, while it makes sense to have them on some form of distributed ledger technology, it's completely not obvious to me why that should be a blockchain. So a, a, a blockchain is a very, very specific right. problem. So a yeah. very, very specific. Particularly solution. a public blockchain. It doesn't necessarily have to be a public public blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. So so the so the point is, you know, uh that I I I I agree. Like if you're gonna do it using Bitcoin or Ethereum or something, yeah, it's all too slow and blah, blah, blah. But that, I don't think that means anything about the future. I think but, the the point the future is part of it, which you which you highlighted at the beginning, is there's something different about NFTs because we never used to have that, and now we do. And so, how do people respond to that? Uh, I mean, one I of the things that's different is now people. now you can have ownership without possession. You don't actually have to possess a physical item, and you can still have ownership of it, and you can transfer that ownership. This is really the the powerful aspect I think of NFT. And, and, and they create markets a, because it makes it possible a, to transfer ownership. Yeah, and it, in financial terms, I think it means that you can have liquid markets in things that didn't used to be liquid that's right so you know brett and i can trade a square inch of the mona lisa 
or you know tickets to a Dodgers game or I mean whatever we can trade things in continuous liquid markets where identity can be established I mean these markets will be reputation markets not identity markets where we can't cheat each other where we can't forge where there's a kind of transparency to what's going on which in in many ways is a really important factor in the future financial infrastructure that we don't have now this kind of transparency so i i i think you're on the money there robert i think nfts are really interesting can i ask you dave sort of taking this in a slightly different direction but you know we're now um you know let's think about the problems that identity needs to solve so one of the problems we have you know emerging on twitter at the moment for example is you know under the the banner of you know quote unquote free speech is that you have bad actors who are pretending to be other people um you know and other brands and things like that but you know how do you know in in this world of disinformation that has really created a ton of chaos how do we attribute you know these things not to russian bots and you know and and trolls and so forth how do we get to a point where when someone says something that is extremely damaging to society that can create violence against a group of people for example how do we hold them responsible given the changes we're going to need in identity or is that even possible I mean, I think there's a there's a political problem there, which is out, outside my technological envelope. But uh, what I would observe is there there are really two distinct problems here, which have been sort of jumbled up a little bit. So when um, Elon Musk was 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 taking over Twitter, one of his major complaints was that there's too many bots, and that's true. There's an issue. So there is a technical issue, which is how do I know whether you're a bot or not? That's actually quite easy to solve. They, I don't know why they don't do this. Like when I when I go and create my Twitter account, you could just bounce me to my bank and for, get me to log into the bank. The bank knows whether I'm a real person or not. The bank can send back a cryptographic token that tells Twitter, yes, this is one of our account holders with no personally identifiable information in it. It's none of Twitter's business who I am. Just an authentication. It's, yeah. It's just this, like, am I a person or am I a bot? That's like one issue, which actually is quite easy to solve. I think What's that's why he's trying issue? to get people to subscribe for the verified identity because then I say this is why they this is why they're jumping up swipe, this right? verification thing. So so problem A is am I a person, right? Problem B is am I this Dave Birch? And Twitter, I think personally, is it's none of their business. Neither of those problems are Twitter. Twitter is should be operating the social network properly. They should be policing and they should be working out how followers work and who I am. Why is that any of Twitter's business? I don't understand that. Isn't it, isn't it um, like Twitter's responsibility to ensure that if you're going to represent yourself as someone or put some ideas forward, that there needs to be accountability for that? Yeah. But why does that have to come from Twitter? I mean, for example, if you're trying, if you're trying to find, so out, this is know, digital identity you, infrastructure, essentially. King, or are you the Brett King? Well, how does right. Twitter do that? Right? Who knows that you're the Brett King? Well, actually, LinkedIn does. So, but but how? I mean, th- this is this is sort of really when we come to this question of decentralized identity versus centralized. Because if you are going to have an identity system that enables you to verify who you are when you're transacting, when you're asking for medical advice, when you're sending your kids to school, when you're driving on the road, you know, et cetera, um, you know, this needs to be 
really core infrastructure for an economy. But, 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 the, but the, just because the identity is decentralized. So, so I mean, if you want me to be a horrible technical nerd about this, when, when you say decentralized identity, what I hear is control over private keys. So are the private keys held in some place or are they decentralized and held by me? That's quite that's a completely separate problem from who attaches credentials to the associated public keys. So, so if you say like, am I a doctor, for example, what does that what does that actually mean? What that means is I need to present a credential which contains the fact that I'm a doctor. And it has to be signed by someone that you'll trust. Like, if I say, oh, I'm a doctor, you'd be like, well, whatever. You know, I need to see a thing that says you're a doctor that's signed by the American Medical Association or the hospital or whatever. Now, you will have the public key of the hospital. You can immediately check, is that is that really from the hospital? Or is that, mean like, those things are, I wouldn't say trivial, but the point is we understand exactly how to resolve all that stuff. So the location of the private key and the signing of things that are attached to the public keys are, are distinct issues. You can have a decentralized identity infrastructure with a with a with a reputation system that works perfectly on top of it. Because when you challenge that certificate, that I, I present the thing that says I'm a doctor under the hood, you're constructing a cryptographic challenge against the public key. That can only be answered by the person who has the corresponding private key. So what I'm in practice doing when I put my thumb on my iPhone or look at it or whatever is I'm demonstrating control of the corresponding private key. Now but but uh, but this uh, this can't realistically occur without at least a um, a standard for identity that is published totally. or must be totally. adhered to. It's so, happening right now, Brett. It's happening, but in a in a fragmented, haphazard fashion. So, for instance, today, if I log into Google, um, it's going to ask me for two factor identity, and I have to go to my phone and log into the Google app just to prove right. that it's me. But it works, right? I mean, it's only within Google's ecosystem that it will work. But they're making a big play for this, right? Because they're trying to extend Google identity across the web, and they'd like to continue to control it, just like Facebook. And presumably, Apple's going to follow down this path as well. This is what the big I, I, web two companies are seeking to do to preserve identity. If you want to be, if you want to be more speculative about that, Brett, I think one thing to think about might be who is it that underwrites those? So, because we, we, you know, I'm a boring old person. I'm very reactionary. I assume that eventually the banks are going to get their act together and sort this out. So when I go to log into Twitter and prove that I'm a person, it'll be my bank that does it. But actually, there are other candidates. Yeah. Right? Like Walmart knows that I'm a person. You know, the Disney Channel might know that I'm over 18. So the telco might know that I'm currently in the UK. The telcos have a huge opportunity here that they're not currently doing much with, frankly. They know much more about us than they're willing to let on. Dave, let me offer an idea here that you might find interesting because this is a field that's uh, quite futuristic. Uh, In the the field of decentralized autonomous organizations, where many of the participants are are anonymous, and we don't even know where they are, and they don't want that information to be uh, known by the other members of the DAO, but yet people are working collaboratively towards a goal, and they can actually run a business this way. So it's a novel kind of an organization. Uh, The way you build identity there, where you don't know who the people are, is with reputation tokens. And so you earn reputation tokens based on positive contributions to the community. Um, And if the community feels your contributions are not positive, you know, like the kind of crazy stuff we see on Twitter and Reddit, then your reputation will be voted down by the community. So over time, Mm -hmm. people are gonna be quite cautious about the contributions they make if they wanna have a better reputation. 
Um, what I've learned is that if you're a member of multiple DAOs, and many people are, um, as you build up reputation tokens or reputation uh, inside of each of these DAOs, that is a perfect fingerprint. Uh, that is a perfectly unique identity uh, across multiple DAOs. You've, or you've got a reputation token, uh, you know, uh, multiple reputations across multiple DAOs can't be replicated by anybody else because you have to earn it over time and have to earn it with the community's consent. And what we don't need there is the traditional identifiers, you know, my, my, my weight, my height, my face, my fingerprint, um, my address, uh, my birth date, the stuff that government identity relies upon. And the, the stuff that, as Brett pointed out earlier, is you know totally. easily stolen on the web, and it's not very easy to protect. Yeah. So it doesn't seem to be the right approach. This okay. idea is quite different, and I think it's a really fascinating and fun idea because it's identity that is placeless and actually anonymous. You don't really need to know who the you don't need to know if it's a man or a woman, what country they're from, and so forth. It's just is this person a reliable contributor to this community? Over time, that reputation score builds up. Uh, so that becomes the basis for the distribution of proceeds inside of a DAO. Based on how much reputation you have, that's how much you're going to get paid when there's a distribution from uh, of revenue or for, of profit to the partners in the DAO. Yeah. It's a fascinating and, new concept. And we yeah. And I think I think you're you're this is a really interesting line of thinking Robert because also it also contains the seeds of the sort of kind of law and order side of this thing. You know, if if I misbehave in one of those like if i if i'm speeding in my car on the way home and i get caught i'll get fined whatever it is i know 50 pounds or something i'd pay in and carry on if i do something really bad in one of these uh dows and i get shut out of it that's a really serious punishment yeah like you know i so i i will behave myself because if if i get cut out that's really bad for me. That's like your, real. Your, your future income will be cut off, right, from that down. So there's kind of a there's a, there's a line of argument which says actually when these things are structured properly, people will behave better, more constructively in those virtual worlds than in the actual world. And I I I'm not sure if I. But isn't that the argument for Sesame Credit in China? And then you see what's uh, happening no, now. The protesters well, uh, against COVID are getting their credit scores slashed. That's a centralized system, though, and it's used by government to control people, right? We're talking here about a completely opt-in system where you voluntarily participate. If you want to drop out, you can. But well, here, here's here, here's here's an interesting question for you, Dave. From this is is what what about the identity of the DAO? What about identities of AIs and these um, you know bots and agents will be transacting on the web? How how do we come to trust those um, you know digital constructs? It's so interesting talking to you guys. I love it. Um, well, look, you know, the the reputation would apply to a bot just the same as it would apply to a person. Like if you're if you're a bot that makes constructive suggestions about, I don't know, you know, let 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 let's say, you know, you talk about you you said earlier on about sports fans and wonder. So like I belong to a sports fans group. And we have interesting conversations about about the World Cup and uh, you know who the Germany manager to pick tonight for the like and and I I I think you're really you know you make really sensible contributions to this and I like your thoughts about this and I you know I I like the way you think about the team construction whatever. why would I care whether you're a person or not you know yeah. why would I care it doesn't it's, really matter in the it's future. a purely reputational environment yeah yeah you know. Now, 
in Elon Musk's world, there's good reason to care whether you're a bot or not, because I don't want to sell you advertising. That's a waste of money, advertising to a bot, of course. So knowing you're a bot or not makes sense in some circumstances, but not in others. And if you if it is a reputational economy, then why would the reputation depend on whether you're a person or not, unless it was a personal reputation, if you see what I mean? So, and I, look, I, I'll tell you one very quick story, Robert, about this. I once, I, 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 I used to read a newsletter about digital money. And one day it showed up with a little thing at the bottom, which said, I'm really sorry. I just can't afford to do this for free anymore. You know, somebody needs to sponsor this or I can't do it. And I thought, I love this newsletter. So I'll sponsor it for the company. So I said, okay, we'll give you whatever it was, $1,000 or something. And I get back a message which says, that's great, but actually to save on F, can you just wire the money to our ISP to pay for our ISP bill? I said, sure, give me the details. So I send the money to the ISP. The newsletter shows up with thanks to Consult Hyperion at the bottom. I'm happy. I'm still getting the newsletter. I like. I have no idea whether that newsletter was produced by a room full of students, some mm -hmm. genius guy, agents of a foreign power i don't even know it was useful to me i paid for it did i care whether it was a person or not i did not i did not okay so um two we want to get big picture now totally sci-fi here dave so um breaks come off okay um 30 years out 50 years out what has happened to money and identity well, ho hopefully, identity will will will, sh will have shifted into a reputation. I mean, I hope this will happen. Whether it's driven by the banks or Disney or Walmart, I couldn't say, but I, I think it's coming. Money, I said in I said in one of my other books, Beyond um, uh, Before Babylon, Beyond Bitcoin, I said that I thought the next evolution of money would be more community oriented. I, I kind of stand by that. And when you see the interesting things going on. Because the new technology lowers the cost of going into the money business, you'd reasonably expect to see more experimentation and more different kinds of money. And I just have a feeling that the kinds of money that will get traction will be kinds of money that reflect the values of, of the communities that use them. You know, you could imagine, imagine there was an Islamic electronic currency that was based on gold, right? A non-interest bearing currency that was based on, that could have a billion users, nothing yeah. to do with like financial yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or suppose suppose there was a suppose there was a kind of money that was only was only created using green eco like yeah. there could be billions of people that use that earth coin. So this or earth coin, yeah, exactly. That's why it's in my head. So so this idea that you you would have money that embodied some values Purpose, of the yeah. that used it. I I can sort of see the seeds of that being sown now. Yes. I know that. You know, so the idea that everybody will be using dollars, um, I don't know. I don't know. And not, right. to, so, not to flog the NFT thing too much here, but the, that is actually what's happening. That's why NFTs have been durable during this meltdown. You don't have to convince as many people that they're valuable. It's a smaller community where with a general purpose cryptocurrency, you've got to convince everybody right. that's a unit of account or a medium of exchange or a store of value. And candidly, they haven't really demonstrated that very well, even with Bitcoin. But with NFTs, you only have to convince a thousand people that that actually has some value and that they care to exchange. I, I don't stuff. think we need NFTs. I think we need PDTs, purpose-driven tokens. Yeah. Well, Bigger, I mean, you heard it first. Yeah. I think utility tokens is, is, yeah, no, I think that that's a big field of growth. <laughs> All right, Dave, um, here, here's where we want to wrap up. Uh, now I want you to get totally sci-fi. 
um, you know, like 30, 50 years out again, long, long horizon stuff. Um, what are you most excited about for our long-term future as a human species? Just a little question. I mean, I, I'm, I'm unconvinced. I think, you know, in the long term, the octopuses are going to take over. So <laughs> Thanks for all the fish. Thanks for all the fish. Um, what I'm most excited about, I, I was listening earlier on to the uh, Tom Standage from The Economist was doing his, um, you know, forecast of the year ahead. He's very. I know Tom, he's a very smart guy. And one of his four, well, it's not his forecast, he's collated these from other futurists, was, you know, you know, there's weird things happen, right? A weird outcome of the war in Ukraine is an acceleration of green energy because people want sustainable energy. Like it would never have come in a, in another. Yeah. Yeah. So that's being brought forward. So I I think in 50 years time, there will be a giant solar farm in the Sahara, which will supply energy to most of Europe as well as Africa. Um, Africa's biggest export will be energy at that point. Um, and the cable that's going to connect... By the way, people are building, talking about doing this right now. There's going to be a cable that runs from Morocco to Cornwall mm-hmm. to power in. So if you think, like, what's going to be really different in 50 years' time? I think it's going to be energy. I, I do. You know, what? what's really interesting is if you research, um, you know, the the concept of turning the, you know, part of the Sahara into a massive solar farm, that the side effects of that is that in a couple of hundred years that Sahara will be a rainforest because that heat sink that it creates draws moisture in. And it's very interesting to look at that. It's I know it's off on the track, but anyway, well, thanks, Dave. There's always this futurist thing, like if you want to look 50 years forward, you have to look 100 years back, mm. right? And yeah. so if you think, what, yeah. what's what's really going to be, like if, if the internet is connected into my head, it's still the internet, you know? Um, what's going to be really different? I just it's going to be energy. I just yeah. I'm sure. No, well, free energy is also going to change the way we think about economics and everything. Dave Birch, thanks for joining us this week on the Futurist. Where, where can people follow your musings, your your writings, and so it's forth? It's all at it's all at www.dgwbirch.com. DGW Birch, and that's of course your Twitter handle as well. Yeah, yeah, and LinkedIn. Uh, that's it. So, uh, Rob, you want to take us out this week? Sure thing. Well, Dave, it's been a great pleasure to meet you, and I've enjoyed your book and your comments immensely. Thank you for joining us this week. Um, folks, if you've enjoyed listening to The Futurists, that's it for this week. But we'll be back next week with another show. And in the meantime, tell a friend about our show if you like it. Please leave a five-star review, review wherever you listen to podcasts on Spotify, Apple, or any place else. Uh, that helps other people discover the show. And we've been so grateful for those who've done it because the, the number of people listening to the podcast is growing really quickly. So thanks to those who've done that already. Yeah, we've done, had over 100,000 downloads already. And Brett and I welcome suggestions and questions and comments. We started to get a number of those from people who are listening, uh, questions about the future, suggestions for improving the show, and suggestions for guests. We welcome that as well. So please keep sending that stuff our way. And then we finally want to thank our production team at Provoke Media, including Kevin Hirshhorn, our, our producer and audio sound engineer who's going to have a hell of a time this week fixing the show, but I'm sure he's up to the task. And to Elizabeth Severance and Sylvie Johnson, who produced the show this week. Thank you all very much for listening, and we will see you in the future. 
Well, that's it for the futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.